Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Sarah McDowling. I'm here with my wonderful colleague, Shanu Prasad. And we are sitting opposite the amazing Garth Nix. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. It is so great to see you, Garth. Thank you. Um, I just came to be called amazing, actually. But, <laughs> oh, well, there'll be plenty more of that, don't worry. I'm <laughs> Thank just you. Get, I'm just getting started. Uh, you have come in today to talk to us about your new book, Angel Mage. For the people listening, could you just tell them a little bit about what the book is about, and then we'll just talk about how great it is. <laughs> <laughs> I always find it so hard to talk about my own, my own books. Um, Angel Mage is a fantasy adventure. It's set in an alternate 17th century kind of Europe, and it is about a young woman who is obsessed with uh, an archangel and she has once already destroyed a kingdom in an effort to uh, to become closer to that archangel and is about to have another go in angel mage uh, she's come out of a very long sleep and uh, because she needed that time and is once again gathering her forces and her power uh, including the use of angels, which she summons by icons. Uh, and she also discovers that she needs the assistance of four key characters uh, to help her in her quest. Uh, and it's a quest that she's embarked upon regardless of what happens to everybody else um, as a consequence of it. Um, her name is Lilith, and the four characters that uh, she must bring together and guide to her fell purposes uh, Simeon, who is a doctor, a medical student. Uh, Agnes, who's a musketeer, a very new musketeer. They're all quite newly embarked in their various roles. Um, Henri, who is a clerk to the cardinal. Uh, and who have I forgotten? Dorothea. Dorothea. I'm not at my most swift thinking today. She's my favourite um, character too. So. Yeah, oh, awful. How, can, how could I forget? And she's well, they're all my favourites. And Dorothea is also uh, an angelic mage and icon maker. The two are very closely connected. I mean, part of my problem about talking about angel mage is that I've just finished writing my next book you know, <laughs> after that. So I have to cast my mind back from being so deeply immersed in that book uh, to go back and think, hmm, well, I, f- I finished angel mage like a year ago, so let me refresh my mind. Hey, I'm impressed. I can't remember things that happened last week, let alone last year. <laughs> well, I should be able to remember all, you know, everything about my own books, but uh, don't ask me about any of the really old ones because that could get really tricky. I would now like you to recite every angel's name that appears in Angel Mage. <laughs> and their order of their ranks would be good too, I think. Wait, that yeah. said, I was, I, would you ever release a list of them with their like uh, hierarchy and their you know, power that they are? Well, hopefully what will happen is that some very keen person will do it, will do it, do it put it up on Wikipedia for me, as they have done for the Old Kingdom and so on. The hierarchy of angels is at the front of, of the book. But it's just a list rather it's, than It's a, a list of the hierarchy. It doesn't actually give the angels names. That, and that's adapted. I mean, that is basically the same as the, the sort of commonly accepted angelic law, mm. um, which is all relatively recent. It's mostly medieval uh, and I've, I've sort of, you know, tweaked it, tweaked it a little yeah. bit um, here and there. But the angels' names I've, I've made up. And I've discussed with you before your ability to create the, just the most lyrical, mellifluous names that are just beautiful. And it's gone wild here. Like every place name, every character name, you've got beautiful places like Bascony and Serrance and Cadence and everything just sounds 
Beautiful. And then you've got, and then I need your help with some of the pronunciations of the angel names, but we've got the main one in play is Palineal. 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 And then there are, uh, oh, there are so many others. There was one that I was like, okay, no, I have to ask you how to pronounce this one. It's uh, sort of later in the book. Lilith calls on an angel that has the ability to like lift people into the air. It starts with an M. There's a lot of E's and L's. And I've, Wanted to say Marielle, but... <laughs> I need the book passed to me to actually... <laughs> Luckily, I just went through all the pronunciations mm-hmm. for the audio book recording about a month ago. So, um, again, you would think that I would be able to... Uh, I just really like to put you on the spot. You do. I, yeah. <laughs> these tough questions, you, you could have asked me before. I mean, I, I need... I need early advice about I the, have these given things you some too. I'm just so interested in how... It, it reminded me of the French name Marais... But well, I, so it I is, wondered how to pronounce yeah, it's, it. Yeah, it is an, an adaptation of that. Most of the names, uh, because it is very much influenced by Dumas' The Three Musketeers. Mm. I should have mentioned that, of course. How could I fail in my description? Um, <laughs> it's not a retelling of The Three Musketeers, but it is very much inspired by The Three Musketeers. Um, and the characters are not direct analogues, but um, they there are... There are oh, some... The lights just flickered strangely here yeah. as I spoke. As you spoke, the, the angel is, is not an happy angel that you cannot remember the angel's name. <laughs> I think that's right. I think it's, that's, that's good. That was spooky. Uh Yeah, yeah um, that's actually a very tricky one. When I was working out the pronunciations for the audio uh, narrator, I was thinking, yeah, what was I thinking? <laughs> Uh, I would probably say uh, Mararay. Mararay. Mararay, yeah. yeah. So oh. Mararay is an angel whose, whose scope is um, movement of the air and so on. All, all the angels have very defined abilities, which they, they call the scope of their power. And some of them are quite small. Uh, they can't do very much and some are much, much broader. Um, but they can only work, or it's believed they can only work within the bounds of, of, of their scope. And very curious about how you um, sort of your process in determining what angels were going to have what powers. Is that something that you worked out before you started, um, just started on the book or as you were writing the book, did you think, oh, I actually need an angel to be able to do this to move the story forward and just sort of come up with it as you were, as you were going? It's a good question because that kind of reflects two quite different schools of fantasy writing, mm. um, though, of course, there's many things in between and, and mixtures of the two because a lot of people do prepare all this sort of thing before they write the story. I'm not one of them. Um, <laughs> I, I work out what I need for the story as I as go. As go, yeah. Um, but it's a cumulative thing because the more you invent, the more is already there. So, and, and, and of course, the more you have already made concrete the less room there is to, to to do new things sometimes. So it's not as easy as, oh, you know, I need this for the story, so I'll have an angel do this because that might not work within the kind of reality that you've set up. Yeah. Yeah. There could be all um, kinds of knock-on effects. Yeah, and it can be too tempting. And also you don't want the, the magic fix-it thing where no. <laughs> the character's in an awful situation, everyone's going to die, and then... Out of nowhere, suddenly they're <laughs> saved by this magic thing. It has to have been set up previously. previously absolutely. Um, you can still do it. It's yeah. just it's all in the setup. No, but you certainly don't get that feeling here. It definitely no, feels like all, this is a, so a real logical. world. Yeah. Right, right from the beginning, and again, well, there's an I can't pronounce the angel's name. The angel that protects you from diseases in the air starts with an H. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Um, 
<laughs> but you, you've got Simeon, and as you mentioned, yeah. he's a, a doctor Requaniel. or a student. Yeah. Requaniel. Oh, yeah. I had it wrong. I thought, who, who's the Requaniel one that is the one that protects from, from uh, disease. There, yeah. are a, there, there are a lot of angels, but there's a lot of angels. In, in, this, in this book. Um, you, can't, you can't go past a page without there being... I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's woven into the fabric of the world. Yes. The, the angels are crucial and to the world. world. So it's a are, great... Look, it's... I said to you before the podcast, I never knew what I needed in my life was a Three Musketeers flavoured angelic magic system fantasy world. And until I found myself yeah. in it and I didn't want to leave. It was yeah. a cool. great place Sarah, to Sarah be. would like you to write another 12 books, particularly 12. <laughs> I formally <laughs> request. Well, I may well, I may well write it. I mean, I, as I was joking before, it's only a half joke. Nearly all my books even when they have intended to be standalones, have the possibility of sequels. Yeah. It seems to be something I automatically do is is prepare myself to, to potentially to right. write more books. Um, I was going to say one of the the shortest, I think, best descriptions of of the book was from my uh, UK publicist at Gallant, Stevie Finnegan, who tweeted, I think she said, um, uh, I bet you didn't know you wanted... The Three Musketeers with angelic magic and kick-ass women characters. Because and that's 100% that kind of, what you... Yep. <laughs> what that kind is. of sums it up. You it's know. so well said. You, so you mentioned it's not a retelling and that's and that's true, but, you know, fans of The Three Musketeers will be... I hope so. ...happy to see characters pop up with familiar names like D'Artagnan and Rochefort, but they won't be the characters that you quite expect them. as... No. Yes, and they're a su- supporting cast. And, of course, mm. Liliath herself becomes Milady as well yeah. in, a, in a different sort of way. Mm. Um, and, and there is a queen rather than, than, than a king, and, and the cardinal is also a woman. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and as is D'Artagnan. Um, so the similarities and inspirations, there are also some very important... Uh, in the Three Musketeers, the, the, the diamond studs uh, are a very important part of the plot. Uh, we have some diamond icons in, yeah. in Angel Mage, which are very significant. Um, so there's lots of uh, inspiration and affectionate homage stuff going on. Uh, and it's a swashbuckling adventure. It and is so satisfying in that way. It's but it's also good because I have not read The Three Musketeers, but I still managed to completely enjoy it. Oh, and I hope so. also still kind of get, I've watched, maybe we'll watch like the Chris O'Donnell movie. You get the, you get you the might, idea. There might yeah. be a few little things that... <laughs> so it can um, be enjoyed on both levels, yeah. which is great. Yeah. And, and speaking of movies, I did in fact dedicate the book to the best Three Musketeers <laughs> movie, which is the Richard Lester uh, one from the early 70s. Uh, which you you may remember has Oliver Reed and Michael York and oh, Rachel yes. Welch. The best one. Yes, it, I think it's the best one because it it actually tells the story. It's very true to the story. Uh, it uh, captures the humour which is in Dumas. Though not all the not all the translations of the Three Musketeers actually have that humour. I remember the first time I read it was in a very dry, dusty school type edition. And I, it was a pretty good book, but it wasn't that great. But then you, a few years later, I read a much, much better translation, in my view. Um, I don't know whether it's a more accurate one, but it, where it just captured the humour. Mm. Um, so the, the the three musketeers and the four musketeers, because they made two films, and very famously only paid the actors for one, and that the, and then, uh, which didn't work. It didn't work out. Obviously, they ended up having to pay, and there's a, it established a whole precedent of. Uh, of how you can't do that. Um, but that was the producers, not Richard Lester. Um, it, it just has the – and the look of it is fantastic. It just looks yeah. so amazing. It was shot in Spain. Uh, it's, 
the costumes are brilliant. The fight direction's superb. There was a very famous English fight director called William Hobbs did all the jewels and 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 they are they're they're real they're real 17th century jewels. They lose their swords. They have makeshift weapons. There's people falling over each other. Some, it, if you haven't seen them, they are they're very well worth seeing. I mean. The, the fight scenes alone are brilliant, but also the characterizations of of uh, of the three musketeers and and D'Artagnan. Oliver Reed as Athos, um, Frank Finlay as Porthos, um, uh, Geraldine Chaplin as the Queen, who's brilliant. Charlie Chaplin's daughter, um, Raquel Welch is uh, Constance Bonacieux, and 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 who, who's played as being. Incredibly clumsy. Spike Milligan's in it. As Spike Milligan's in it. Yeah. Three Musketeers. Uh, yeah, I didn't just see well, him. Well, he's the he's D'Artagnan's landlord. He's oh my he's God. he's brilliant. Um, Charlton Heston's brilliant as the Cardinal. Um, You're blowing my mind. My my Three Musketeers movie point of reference is the '90s one with Chris O'Donnell. Yes. And like, yeah. yeah that's of the course, it's much more recent. And then there's a there's an even more, more recent one, recent which one, is yeah. which is awful. Yeah, that um, was a strange one. That I was that was terrible. <laughs> I, I try. I mean, I watch them because I and I love, love musketeer stuff. Yeah. But um, I, I've, I've been disappointed with them compared to the, the three and the four musketeers, mm-hmm. which is is just the story of the three musketeers. The three musketeers is quite a long book, and it actually does have kind of two separate stories in it. And uh, so, why not two films? How I they thought <laughs> how they thought this would work? Whether the actors would just not notice that they'd done two. <laughs> two films. We seem to have been shooting for a long time. This is more how many scenes? Yeah, how many scenes is this? So I do. I definitely recommend. Uh, I recommend those films and and finding the a good translation of, yeah. of the Three Musketeers. Well, that makes sense because you definitely do get a sense of the humour um, coming through and the relationship between yes, between the I characters love, in this in, in your book as well. Yeah. So oh, good, yeah. good. Yeah. So watching your four musketeers like <laughs> find each other and bond and it was just lovely. Yeah. And there's just uh, I'm I'm really in danger of just ruining some plot points. No, or just, just like way talking too much. for the whole rest of the podcast about how much I loved it and not letting you get another. You can keep doing that. <laughs> I'll just walk away and you, you can just keep saying how much you love the book and and reminding people to buy it. <laughs> Well, I mean, yes, that is our jobs. But, like, I really want – so, obviously, The Three Musketeers was an inspiration for you, but do you remember the first – like, do you remember how it came together in your mind that you were going to blend that type of a story with this angelic magic system? Um, and where did the idea for that come from? Because they go together so well. Like, religion is such a factor in, in those yeah, times. Yeah, and, and the depiction of angels – I had, I mean, it's an idea that's been around with me for quite a long time. And in fact, I wrote a short story, uh, which is called The Heart of the City. And I can't actually remember what it first appeared in. Um, it's probably about 10 years ago. It was for an anthology. Uh, and that was that was actually uh, set in the 1620s in Paris, but with angelic magic. Uh-huh. So... Uh, that was a precursor, in a sense, to this, but it was much. More, it was more serious. Uh, it didn't have the same sort of light touch as as, as this does. Um, so back then, I was thinking about that combination of Three Musketeers and angelic magic, and I think it does come from that fascination. I mean, I love history in general. The certain periods that I 
I wax and wane. Sometimes I have, you know, one particular favourite period and then, then later on I'll have another one. But I've always had a great fascination with the 17th century, uh, the art, the architecture, uh, the literature, you know, all of it. And I guess that just, it all just came together initially in that, in that short story and then that stuck with me and I thought, I, I do want to expand that into a novel, but I didn't want to expand that story because I didn't want to write uh, an alt historical novel. I wanted more, fan- more room for fantasy. Uh, and possibly that's just laziness because in an historical novel you have to actually get things right. Um, well, if you say it's an historical novel and people... People expect you to. Yeah. yeah. Um, it just gives you the freedom to and, write. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and setting it in a fantasy world that is like, uh, is like 17th century France and Europe but gives you more elbow room to just to play around and make it your own. Yeah. There's, um, there's a bunch of cool maps at the beginning of the book and I have to say like you know flipping through it before I started reading I was like oh this is going to be awesome <laughs> I <laughs> love because, cool maps yeah there's so um just to tell the people listening a little bit about this world um oh no is that too spoilery to like talk about this Sarah and is it too spoilery it's probably it's, too spoilery. it's it's, it's, it's hard <laughs> to know I mean it's always different I completely lose perspective on what is a spoiler or not at yeah. this what people think are spoilers varies yeah. enormously um the maps the maps though i mean the main map is of lutes which is the sort of paris equivalent um where most of the action takes place and then there's a star fortress a classic 17th century uh fortress of bastions and ravelins and so on uh, there's a map of that as well, where yeah. a lot of action takes place there. I, I, I love I love drawing maps and and having maps in my books. And do you do those before again? Is it a thing that you sort of have before during. you start? During, <laughs> during, during, during mostly, during and with a lot of backtracking along the way. Yeah, realizing <laughs> actually we that's actually a bit too far. They exactly. can't actually travel that far yeah, in one well, day. Exactly. If it takes these other people three days to travel that yes, that yes. time. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Um, correcting the maps is always a, is a big part of it. Um, so, but I normally have a very bad sketch quite early on and then I, I revise it as I go. Refine it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then, and usually the maps are redrawn by, uh, much more capable artists. Uh, Well, these weren't, no, actually these, these ones I did myself, though I did then have some help from, um, David Curtis, the, um, HarperCollins art director who, fix them up a bit more in, in Photoshop because <laughs> my map making skills are quite good. My Photoshop skills are terrible. Oh, terrible. oh um, wow. So I, I had not used Photoshop for many, many years and then I was using it to, to get these ready. And I was, and I was thinking, hmm, it didn't work like this back in 1999, <laughs> Photoshop version 2 or whatever it was. So, now up to 75. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I did have some a very important help uh, in that regard. Well, I also, we've got some questions that we wanted to ask you, but before we get onto that, can we talk a little bit about Lilith? Because she's, yes. you know, perhaps the main character, sort of. It's like... It's an ensemble she's a, cast, she's but, a main but uh, she's a main, absolutely a main player. I mean, there's the four and, Li- and Lilith yeah. uh, are definitely equal, equal build, I think. Yeah. And I loved her from the second early on when she... Again, I don't think this is a spoiler, but Shanu, just like punch me if I go too far. No, 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 no. She's um, 
you know, she's woken up and she's gone and uh, sat in the church next to a priest and she's having a conversation with him and I got a very bad feeling about the future of this priest. And she put her, her arm around his shoulder as we were talking and I was like, I love this character. <laughs> From that moment, I was just like, oh. And again, in a spoiler-free but I hope tantalising way, I felt for the majority of the book I thought I knew what would happen to Lilith and I was very wrong. And the thing that did happen to her was so awesome. <laughs> like, it was just nothing nothing that I expected but absolutely perfect. Oh, good. Well, that's good to hear. Um, she is a very interesting character mm. and I do like writing people like that who on some levels are could be seen as evil uh, but I don't actually I don't actually see her as evil she does do things which are definitely wrong mm. and and uh, not good um, but it's her motives it's that we won't talk mo- about, but that's... The, I think, the motive for yeah. it, I mean, she's more misguided, mm. ser- yeah. seriously misguided. Yeah. Than, uh, very single-minded. Mm-hmm. And very single-minded. Yes. And, there's always, and young. And young, yeah. absolutely. And that's, I think... And I think that's almost the key to her yes, character is... it is, is the key, is, yeah. You know, which, and, again, we can't say too much. And so, pow- so powerful, so young, too, yeah. I think, is yeah. to, be, to have such enormous gifts at a very young age and not really... Uh, and not be helped in how to use them well yeah. is is actually and a at, big the, at part the beginning of, that. of the novel, the cardinal, one of the cardinals yes. mentions that exact yes. that exact uh, issue and what yes. could happen because of that. Yeah, yes, and in the in the prologue, as a, as a, yeah. as a foretelling. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, and to be the kind of person that's so um, powerful and I guess charismatic that you can get all these people to follow your cause, even though they might be somewhat in the dark. Yes, <laughs> is like that's a it's a I don't know, it's a cool thing. It's a cool story. You need to read this story. It's very cool. And I just had one last last question or just sure. comment that um, was just about um, was there a particular, you know, decision that you'd made where like that's it, I'm gonna change some of these characters into being into into being women? Um, because it is so unusual and so great to actually see all these different levels of power um, being female and not being a strange thing or not being a yeah. thing that needs to be commented on. It's just the like way the nearly, world is. I'm pretty sure nearly every most powerful character in this book is a woman. Yeah, it's something. I mean, I did my Old Kingdom books the same in the Old Kingdom. It just women uh, just have all the same jobs and positions of power and so on. And that wasn't conscious really back then. I mean, it possibly stems from working in publishing early on <laughs> where, in fact, all my bosses were women, women. and powerful <laughs> w- women. And, and so it seemed perfectly natural to me. Um, no, it's not, it's not, wasn't really conscious, conscious in, the, in the sense of me deciding, oh, this, this character should be a woman. It's, some of them just felt like that's, that's, that's the, what, what they, they should, should be. be. Um, yeah, it just seemed right and also more interesting because it yeah. it's it's too easy to do the, the, the same male that you've done. Yeah. default. Well, everyone's done yeah, you know, that's for, what I mean. forever. Yeah. yeah, you know. And part of the interesting thing about it is that you've you've got this strong musketeer-flavoured world and we're used to that and in that world all the cardinals are men and all the musketeers are men. And um, having it so naturally be different in this world, it's like same, same but different. It just puts this... I don't know. It's just as it just puts this cool 
spin on something sort of familiar. Well, I think like, it's how the world should be, so why yeah. not make your make, fantasy world? If you can write it, why not? Yeah, as That's it right, and we too. appreciate that you did that. And so. of course, and it, it also works. I mean, I, you know, it's nearly always men who say, you know, women can't do this or can't do that or, or whatever. It's such absolute rubbish. Mm. Um, some of the very most, some of the toughest, most capable people I've ever met have been women. Uh, far more so than than most than any of the men who would who would say they couldn't be. Yeah. I think so. It just, it just it's unrealistic as well. Mm. Uh, the things that 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 keep keep uh, women and and minorities and so on back are not their innate not their innate abilities. It's always the social construct around, around them. them. Yeah. And you're writing a fantasy. Why do you have to carry on that whole yep. construct? And and I guess to a degree. Maybe that's also an influencing factor in not writing an historical. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, novel yeah. because it, that gave me the freedom to do to do that to be more equal. Yeah, yeah. A- and again, I think more actually more re- realistic. It makes the story and the world feel more real to um, have those twists because this might have a lot of elements of seventeenth, sixteenth, seventeenth century, sixteen hundred, seventeenth century. Yeah. 17th century. yeah. yeah. Um, it might have all those elements, but it feels very different to be there because you've got, you know, um, people of all different, uh, like, there's, I'm, what, what, Lutace? Lutace. And then yeah. Serance. Yeah. Yeah. Countries, Serance, yeah. 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 Uh, you get a sense of these places and it's familiar but different and I think that's because of those changes that you've made I, I hope so and I always it, my motivation I think when writing fantasy I always want it to feel real yeah. I, want, I want it to feel real to me and if I can make it feel real to me then it will feel real to the reader even with such things as summoning angels to <laughs> You know, well, there's such logic magic. to that. It feels structured like a religion. Oh, I hope but, so. Um, and consequences, which is yes, fantastic. And, and I think that's very yes. important. Oh, we didn't yeah. talk about uh, that. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> we don't talk too much about it, but no. But I think that important. does really yeah. help to lend the magic system this credibility, grounded feeling. Yeah. Is that you summoning the angels um, has a cost. ages people? Yeah. yeah, it has a cost. Yeah. 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 Generally speaking. Generally. <laughs> most people, with a few exceptions. Yes. Yeah. Which yes. you have to read the book to yes. find out what they yes. what they are. Yep. <laughs> and, what, and, what el- and what else might happen. Yes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, it's, not, it's, it's fun to stray close to the spoilers, right? But we've got to, okay, we've got to ask the, um, our rapid fire questions. Garth. Uh-oh. <laughs> they're not they're not difficult questions i already asked you to name all your angels that was more difficult it was much more difficult <laughs> okay so what was the last book that you really read and adored or something that you could love to recommend to people that's a quite tricky question um just I'm, out of every book in the world <laughs> well i'm reading a biography of thomas cromwell at the moment uh which i'm very much enjoying but i've forgotten the author's name um and it is very good, and that's it's not in preparation for for Hillary Mantel's, for Hillary Mantel's <laughs> the, the mirror and the light. Though I am very much looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. Uh, and in fact, I just reread uh, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. Uh, it's a slightly earlier period, you see. This is 16th century, but it's still yeah. of great fascination to me. Um, and this Thomas Cromwell biography was uh, is recommended by Hillary Mantel. It has has her blurb on the back. 
uh, but the author's name has, has gone out of my mind. It's um, okay. Everyone listening can Google it right They can now. probably find it within a moment. <laughs> um, and it's, it's great. And uh, one, of the, one of the fun things about it, I was, I've just been reading it and, uh, and uh, I came across the mention of Richard Nix, the Bishop of Norwich, who I knew yes. about. I already is I knew he's well he's probably relation because my family does come from uh, around uh, around uh, Norfolk and Lincolnshire um, and I knew I did know about him but there's actually quite a lot in that book about him doesn't sound a very pleasant character to be honest oh. but uh, you know a, di- a dyed in the wool super conservative oh, great. Catholic <laughs> bishop who who resisted you know the Reformation uh, <laughs> on all counts. Um, so crusty old set in his ways bishop, but um, <laughs> still. But it's very nice to be to be to be reading uh, reading that um, fiction. I'm just trying to think what uh, what I've what else I've been reading. Um, it doesn't have to be recent. If there's just something that you'd like recommending, um, it's my, basically a roundabout way of saying tell us about some books that you really like. <laughs> right, my mind instantly goes blank when anyone when anyone asks me uh, it's th- a these tough things. Question. Um, well, there's so there's so many things, um, so many books, wonderful books in the world. Uh, well, I, I was just recommending to you the classics, the Moomin Troll books by <laughs> Tuva Janssen, because I saw one on the shelf behind you, uh, and they they are absolutely brilliant, wonderful books. They are so full of wisdom as well as being great stories, great characters. Uh, you know, fascinating world, this strange Scandinavian world inhabited by not just Moomin trolls, but Hemulans and all kinds of anthropomorphic characters, but also uh, sort of mythic characters. Like there's one character is called the Groke, and the Groke is always cold and is always seeking warmth and connection, but everyone's afraid of the Groke because the Groke freezes everything that it touches. So it just wanders and, and people flee from it and, and it's attracted by fire and so on. Um, so I can't this, believe these books haven't been I'm on my amazed. radar. I, it's astonishing. I'm going to so fix it, don't I worry. will I'll recommend. <laughs> so I'll recommend, I'll recommend the Moomin Troll books by, by, by Tuva Janssen. Um, and probably starting with um, Finn Family, Moomin Troll, or, or Comet and Moomin Land perhaps, which I, there's no strict chronology and they kind of overlap each other. Um, so I'm not even sure what the publication order is. Probably Finn Family Moomin Troll was the first. So I'll recommend the Moomin Troll books. I'm going to take that recommendation because this is clearly a gap um, yes. in my reading history and I need to fill it. Yes. Um, now, this is a question about your writing. Do you have a particular sort of time of day or any sort of rituals around your writing that you follow? Not really. Um I've been very fortunate for a long time that I have a separate office and typically to write in, though I do write at home as well, I guess typically mornings I spend fussing about and doing admin and all, all the things that are associated with writing as a small business essentially. Mm. So I, I have all that sort of admin and all the things to do and which greatly increases towards the release of a book where you have all kinds of marketing and PR things to do as well as the, the business side of things. And so mornings I often spend a lot of time just answering emails and doing all that kind of thing. And then I will gradually get into the, the beginnings of writing. And what I usually do is I will reread what I've written the day before or when I was last 
writing and I'll do a bit of revision to that and then I'll move into, into writing new material. Uh, and then I will go home and see the family, generally in the early afternoon. I normally sort of go home for four o'clock, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I might start writing again quite late at night, like 10 o'clock, and I'll write for an hour or two. Um, I, and particularly towards the end of a book, I, I write much more and I write more at night. So I might do three or four hours a night for, for several weeks now or this months. Is, yeah. This is a bit of a deviation from our questions, but are you, so are you allowed to talk about the, your book that you've got coming up? Next year, and the left handed booksellers of London. Yeah, I'm not allowed to mention it. So, uh, <laughs> oh, no, uh, no, I, I am allowed. Uh, the left handed booksellers of London uh, will be out basically same time next year. I can't wait to know more about this book, just the title of it. Well, is so it's intriguing. set in 1983 oh. in London, a slightly, a slightly alternate 1983 again to enable me to. Yep. Again, play with what's going on socially more than anything. Mm. Um, and it's the story, it concerns a, a young art student, Susan, who's grown up near Bath and has gone to London early. She's got a, a place at the Slade to study later, but she goes to London early to search for her father, who is unknown to her, and almost immediately uh, becomes embroiled in the affairs of the booksellers, whose uh, secret sideline is to make sure that the mythic parts of, of England stay quiescent <laughs> and don't emerge into the modern world. Oh and my God. the left-handed booksellers are, are these sort of field agents, oh. and they're, but they're also right-handed booksellers who actually do all the research and figure oh. things out. And so on. I think I would want to be a left-handed bookseller, and I'm pretty sure I'm a right-handed bookseller. <laughs> I was just thinking the exact same thing. I feel like I, in my heart, I want to be a left-handed bookseller. I imagine I would be a right-handed. Well, bookseller. there's also a very few rare, even-handed <gasps> booksellers who oh. are both. Oh my god, that's maybe so we cool. could be those. <laughs> so, um, so Susan comes to London to find her father, and uh, is is drawn into these. Uh, stuff going on she, she immediately pretty much immediately meets a young left-handed bookseller called Merlin oh. and uh, <laughs> things ensue from there all in the early 80s in That's an alternate right. early oh this just yes. sounds so good yeah I wish I could read it now so we go from I love that we're going from like the uh, the 1600s <laughs> to the 1980s it's perfect it's well 1983 was when I first went to the UK ah, so, so that's why uh, that year particularly it appeals for a, a whole bunch of reasons and also early 1980s television and so mm. on uh, so that that all sort of figures it was easy for me to recreate it from from from, from, from that. Yeah. Well, partly from memory, though. I actually got a couple of things wrong from memory. It's a few things I remembered quite clearly, and they were not right. Um, but it's your alternate version. So it is my exact, and that's yeah. exactly <laughs> that's there. Right. And there is a disclaimer at the front of the book that says, "This is not the London you may remember if Perfect. you were there in the eighties." So and don't it is at a, me. It, yeah, so it is a little bit different. Um, and there and there are some historical changes. So. Um, as well, a few a few different things. Um, so yeah, that's been been fun, and it's uh, I delivered it relatively recently, and uh, everyone's 
been, all publishers are all very, very keen on it, so which oh, is well, always encouraging. I'm very keen on well, it. You will get to read, on you, you said. <laughs> well, you're in your privileged book-selling position. You will get to read it early, no doubt. So, Like we got to read Angel Mage early as well, which is great, but then we have to we keep recommending it to and people to and then have to tell everyone, I'm so sorry, you're going to have to wait a couple of months until it's I know, it makes released. you feel accidentally a bit like a douchebag, but <laughs> you should have seen the reaction when the Angel Mage proof entered the building. It had entered the building after some nagging, <laughs> and so it was kind of like, here is the thing you wanted. And, oh, good. And yes. then I died. But then I I revived myself and read it and it was great. Good. I'm glad you came back to life. Possibly with the help of some of my earlier books uh, involving returning to life. after some bell ringing. Some bell ringing, yes. Uh, I've strayed off topic, but um, who is the first person that you let read uh, your work? It varies somewhat. My my wife, Anna, normally reads things first. she is also a publisher, so it's kind of unfair to inflict uh, <laughs> you know, manuscripts upon her. It just depends on what's going on. Uh, generally speaking, if it's not Anna, then uh, my American agent, Jill Greenberg, is normally the first person who reads it. I'm not a sharer of work in progress. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure why I've, I've always been very secretive about my work. I don't share things until I think they're ready and then they go to basically the people who are going to do something with them. So my, my agent and my, my various publishers will, will get them at roughly the same time. Yeah, I've, um, we've heard that before from authors. I think uh, the consensus is usually that some, some like to share and others feel that if they share at the early stage, it will change well, it's like it, It's like, like everything with writing. Everyone does it differently. There's no yeah. one true way to write a novel. Some people love the the feedback and they love to workshop and share through the whole process and it works really really well for them others you know you will pry the pages from my my hands <laughs> only 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 once you've overcome me you know um so i think there's there's a huge variation and whatever whatever works um and sometimes it can take a while to find out what what works yeah. uh but uh, no, I'm not. I'm not someone who who likes not to, an early share. Not an early share. <laughs> no. uh, do what is the nicest thing anyone's ever said about your writing? Like, do you have or something that someone said to you at a book signing, or something that really stayed with you? I think one of the nicest things which is said to me, and it's happened more as I've got older, unsurprisingly, is from other writers who are inspired to write because of my books. Uh, the first time this this happened is something of a shock because what you know, what goes through your mind is I'm not old enough for this to have happened. Um, <laughs> this person is this this person can't be old enough to have written a book because I'm not old enough to have influenced them. And then you do the maths and you think, oh, hang on a second. Um, so I do, but I do find that I think that's a tremendous compliment because of course I was influenced to write by so many of my favourite authors, uh, very few of whom I ever got to say thank you to, though I have met a few where I've been able to, to say that. I'm Susan Cooper was one who wrote The Dark is Rising, uh, which was very meaningful to me. Uh, so I, I do find that is one of the greatest compliments. But also every now and again someone on Twitter or Facebook will, will say, I wasn't a reader until I read one of your books. Oh, wow. Yes, that has and to that be a compliment. And that is massive. That's huge too. So I think both those things... No, they they certainly give you a warm, a warm feeling. Because really? you know. that's like it. 
a huge effect to have on someone's life yeah. to open them up to reading. Yeah. Like what more could you ask for? Yeah, so that that is that that is a very very nice compliment. Uh, then, um, what is a bit of writing advice that has stuck with you that you received or that you often give? Um, there's lots and lots of writing advice in the world. Uh, some of the best writing advice, I think, is is to remember that there is no one way to do things. There is no silver bullet. There is no golden truth of how to write books so you may have to experiment with lots of different ways of writing or ways to do things and to be published as well there's no there's no uh, absolute truth in any of the advice that that comes from from various people so i think it's always worth bearing in mind that that uh you know, different advice may or may not work in in any individual situation i, I think one of the things that i like to remind people when they're working is that most writers do, in fact, hate their work part way through. <laughs> this is perfectly normal. This is not. This is not unusual. Uh, so halfway through a book, I, I typically dislike my books a great deal halfway through or thereabouts, and I think it's I've somehow lost all my ability, or I never knew how to write anyway, uh, <laughs> and it's it's all some sort of weird scam that I perpetuated. Uh, and I, but I force myself to keep going as I've always done. And, and and typically you you get over the well it's not it's not as bad as I thought or I can fix it and you do fix it uh, maybe it'll need a lot more work or sometimes yes it doesn't work needs to be put away for a while uh, you know, and something else done but the the main thing to do is to to keep on going and keeping on going is the characteristic that defines most career writers. Uh, in that they're not, they don't give up because they hate their work or it's not working out, uh, and they keep on writing, which is so important. Uh, but also in terms of publishing careers, where if things don't work out, which is more often than they do work out, uh, is is to keep going. And I guess the the corollary, I can't say corollary, the corollary. I don't. The, I, I don't <coughs> want to try. The corollary. <laughs> corollary. <laughs> I could, we could get into a little tongue twister here. Sound like an angel after, name. <laughs> after me, corollary, the um, accompanying that advice. <laughs> yes. Um, change the word. Much change better. the word. This is all part of the writing editing process. Uh, is that and I some say this to people? The answer to any publishing problem is to write another book. So it doesn't matter whether it's a problem of success or a problem of failure, relative failure, because. If you've written a book, it's still a success. That's pretty but, successful to me. Yep. Yeah, but commercially, <laughs> yep. there's all kinds of reasons things don't work out and luck plays a big part. Uh, writing another book gives you another go yeah. and it, it also enables you to keep going. So the answer to almost any publishing question is Just write yeah. another book. Yeah. <laughs> so. that is, that's great advice. And I think, um, you know, I think that's what, throws a lot of people is it, it it amazes me to hear someone the authors that come in here who say oh yeah um I've got imposter syndrome and I'm sure that everyone's going to realize it with this book this is the book that's going to unmask me as a complete fraud <laughs> this is from some of the best-selling authors <laughs> in the world that level of self-doubt when you've had such success is amazing like I can't believe you would ever think that <laughs> I don't think that. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I do think that halfway through the books. Yeah. And so I guess everyone has their own yeah, sort of. And 
I don't exactly think that once the book is out, but I also, I suppose what I think when the book is out is that I'm glad that I moved on and wrote another one because waiting around to see what happens with any given book is is a very stressful thing because you do need to be lucky and there's all mm-hmm. kinds of things that may or may not happen and the book business is hard and changing. So it's really important to have moved on and, and be busy with the writing again, not worrying about what's going to happen. with the book that's yeah. coming out. So yeah. if, if I wasn't doing that, I would be thinking, I'm an imposter. <laughs> so I do try and try and keep moving. Keep moving. It's like a shark. You can't stop. Stop. You know? That's right. You can't stop. Well, you keep moving through the well, water. Well, we appreciate so much that you have um, that you do keep writing and that you yeah, kept writing you. to write this book for us, um, Angel Mage. And um, thank you so much. For thank you so much today. for coming in. That's a pleasure. <laughs> so the the book Angel Mage is available um, to uh, order now from Booktopia. Signed. Thank you again. That's right, signed until they run out and then they'll still be available. Which will be shortly. Yes. Again, thank you so much, Garth, for coming in. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.